Balancing out our work on glenohumeral abduction, we now have glenohumeral adduction dysfunction. Arm adduction involves both true adduction of the glenohumeral joint as well as downward rotation, which is something we've divided the inf information down into, those two categories below, similar to our abduction dysfunction lesson. We don't often tend to train adduction of the arm, and so it's commonly an area of opportunity for a lot of people. We also tend to think of adduction from anatomical position. However, this movement is one where it's best to think of an arm from a fully abducted position of the arm to start with. You might also find it difficult to think of a time where you would use adduction very much. However, I would encourage you to think of the effort of adduction as well as the position of adduction um, such as, for example, throwing. We produce a lot of effort towards adduction when we throw, um, and so we recruit the muscles required for adduction in doing so, without necessarily having a huge amount of adduction as a position presented. Given the starting position, given this starting position of a fully abducted arm, we'll typically see anterior tipping and lateral rotation of the scapulocostal joint coupled with that downward rotation up until we return to anatomical position. Keep in mind that with the starting position of full abobduction, anterior tipping from this position will look like a return to neutral or our anatomical baseline, so to speak. If we add in some, fle some flexion or extension of the shoulder in order to keep going with our movement beyond the side of our body, i.e. anterior or posterior to our torso, if we move in either direction in, in order to continue the adduction, then those smaller movement combinations will change dependent upon whether you go posteriorly or anteriorly. Remember that many of the smaller muscles, <coughs> excuse me, remember that many of the smaller muscles below are only contributing generously to, to the action of adduction when starting in a longer state, as described above, so when starting in that abducted position. This means that we'll see a bit of overlap as we then explore the stabilization of this movement further down the page, because when these muscles are shorter, when they are more towards a, you know, a, a baseline length, they play less of a a prime moving role or a less of an accessory moving role and more of a stabilization role. So you'll see a couple of these things show up a few times and uh, some of that will also be reviewed from other lessons as well. I find that the repetition of these types of things is helpful to embody the information a little bit more, especially when we're getting into this kind of a depth. So bear with me as we repeat some of these things and hopefully that helps you to um, really adopt this information a little bit more fully. Evaluating arm adduction. For our optimal range of motion, the arm is measured of adduction is measured by adding a small degree of flexion into the shoulder. So the arm moves anteriorly to your torso. So this is the way that we commonly measure our adduction range, but of course you do have the option, as we mentioned a moment ago, to go either anteriorly or posteriorly. But the standard for measurement is to go anteriorly, so moving your arm in front of your body. 
Ideally, we would be able to get into a range between 50 and 75 degrees from a sagittal plane measurement at the glenohumeral joint. So what that means is if we were to have the sagittal plane positioned at the glenohumeral joint and it would and if you were looking at someone front on, it would be a vertical line, right? Perpendicular to the ground. From that line, we're looking at 50 to 75 degrees of range of motion through adduction of the arm. Keep in mind that this means that we are if we are starting from a fully abobducted position, fully abducted position of 180 degrees, then we're moving all the way through that range and then continuing past our starting position or our sagittal plane line to 50 to 75 degrees of adduction on top of that. When assessing, the scapulocostal movements involved will be more present and pronounced throughout the first 180 degrees of movement, returning to an anatomical position or a similar position to anatomical position, whereas beyond this, you'll mostly be assessing glenohumeral movement or otherwise called true adduction. So just keep that in mind as we cover the information below in the sort of the two... Um, subheadings that we've already created, the, the, the true adduction action and the movements of the scapulocostal joint, specifically downwards rotation. For a general assessment, <clears throat> the exercise is, with enough room to move fully, start in a fully abducted position, as we mentioned above, gradually return the arm to a position that reflects an anatomical position or something very close to that and then continue through anteriorly to your torso as far as you can. From an anterior perspective, measure the degree of adduction available. View from the posterior perspective to see the relationship between the scapular costal and the glenohumeral movement, so you might need to get them to repeat it a couple of times. Repeat this action as well with resistance bands to add load, which if you remember back to a previous lesson, we spoke about how adding load and also doing different things like adding different pace or, or movement velocity, it'll change how uh, the relationship between the scapular costal joint and the glenohumeral joint appears. And sometimes it can highlight how certain muscles may be functioning poorly or maybe how they might be overcompensating. So sometimes adding load via resistance bands can give you even more information than the movement in and of itself can. Especially keep an eye on compensations in the spine um, through mostly what you would see is lateral flexion of the spine, okay? In order to generate a better angle. This is something you may, may have noticed in the picture that I put here above. You may notice that the spine of this particular patient is coming into lateral flexion in an effort to drive greater degrees of adduction. However, that's a little bit of a trick and isn't a, a, a true measurement of adduction of the arm. And so if we wanted to reduce that uh, presence of lateral flexion, we'd really coach people and if we're doing it ourselves we'd really strongly encourage um, neutral spine maintenance and from a perspective of watching someone do it you can coach them with specific cues to keep certain shoulders the same height or making sure that they um, you know aren't leaning through particular particular use of language that may achieve them um, keeping their their position stationary 
first up here we have true adduction, which is our a little bit more of our glenohumeral movement than our scapular costal movement. Prime movers here. The latissimus dorsi, especially when starting from a position of full abduction of the arm, the latissimus dorsi are more prominent as adductors. Remember that this muscle tends to be overactive and adaptively shortened. In a similar fashion to its link with pectoralis major and teres major that we explored in shoulder extension, we will see this same relationship present itself here through our coronal plane action of adduction, especially, again to repeat, especially through that range from a fully abducted position of the arm. The interventions that we could use for the latissimus dorsi were covered over in our lesson on glenohumeral extension dysfunction, where they are, where they are also a prime mover, so you might want to check those out um, over there and come on back once you've done a little review. Otherwise, we will continue to subscapularis. A muscle that we've met a few times, but only briefly at this point, um, we'll discuss it a little bit more in-depth when we dig into medial rotation at the glenohumeral joints it's it, since it has a much larger role there. However, it does play a role here in assisting adduction. Previously, I noted that subscapularis tends to be overactive and adaptively shortened, but it's not quite that simple in reality, of course. <laughs> I'll elaborate more on that in our lesson to come on medial rotation dysfunction of the glenohumeral joint. For now, know that if it is adaptively shortened and overactive, it may create its own greater self-reliance in the initial stages of arm adduction. From, remember, from our starting position of full arm abduction. This may present as a sooner than expected glenohumeral adduction when you may anticipate downward rotation of the scapular costal joint to be the first elements of your adduction movement from that abducted position. Our interventions for the subscapularis, we are going to meet up with them pretty soon when we get to our lesson on glenohumeral medial rotation dysfunction, so hang tight for those interventions. Teres minor and major. These are another two that we'll really be digging into more with our lessons on rotation for the glenohumeral joint. Teres major and minor generate internal and external rotation respectively, and so when they work together in the context of adduction of the arm, they neutralize one another's rotational force, and the end result of that neutralization is an assistance with adduction at the glenohumeral joint, which is pretty cool. You'll also see these muscles show up below in the context of stabilization and neutralization, so keep your eye out for them again. This is a set of those muscles that I alluded to earlier when I said that they will show up as movers when they are longer. So when you are starting in that fully abducted position, we get more input for ab adduction of the arm, excuse me, from teres minor and major when the arm starts up in that position. However, when we get to looking more at um, our range of adduction beyond the anatomical position of neutral, that's when we start to see them show up as, as more of a stabilizing force. 
for our interventions, hang tight for those. They're coming up soon when we get to our rotational movements of the glenohumeral joint as well. Pectoralis major. Throughout a full adduction motion from the starting point described, and that we've repeated now a few times, <clears throat> from our starting point of full arm abduction, we see different regions of the pectoralis major generating adduction force as we progress through our range of motion. In the most abducted ranges of adduction, yes, that's what I'm trying to say, so ab in, in the most abducted ranges of adduction, the more inferior fibers of the sternocostal head of pectoralis major are doing the majority of the work. So I'll repeat that again. In the most abducted ranges of adduction, the more inferior fibers of the sternocostal head of pec major are doing the majority of the work. As the action progresses, the work gradually shifts into the more superior fibers of the sternocostal head and then eventually also includes the clavicular head of pectoralis major. This is important for helping us really get specific on where any work needs to be directed as it relates to this muscle. As an example, the more superior fibers may be stronger and so our adduction will be stronger and more controlled from a lower range of abduction, whereas when starting from higher ranges of abduction, we may see instability and a lack of strength, indicating that in this specific range, that's where we need to do our work, or at least that's indicating to us that the more inferior fibers of pec major are the ones that need more attention rather than necessarily the muscle as a whole. We mentioned earlier that pectoralis major tends to be adaptively shortened, but that this doesn't always occur or accompany overactivity. In fact, there is some evidence that suggests underactivity in movement dysfunctions of the shoulder complex, which means for people presenting with pain or, or discomfort upon moving the shoulder, especially through this type of an action, uh, you might encounter, even though it might be adaptively shortened, it might be also underactive. Additionally, we do tend to see numerous trigger points within pec major, and therefore release techniques are commonly indicated for assisting here. Once again for our interventions, this lesson is a bit of a uh, pause, pause for a moment for interventions until we get to the rotation lectures, so hopefully that, that uh, drives you to those rotation lessons sooner rather than later to get some answers. So it, it is the same here for pectoralis major. Hang tight, we're going to go through it in our lesson on glenohumeral medial rotation dysfunction. The triceps brachii, specifically the long head of triceps brachii. Similarly to glenohumeral extension, we're only talking about a long head here because it is the only portion of the triceps that spans the glenohumeral joint and therefore the only portion of the triceps that influences action at the glenohumeral joint. Previously we noted that the triceps are commonly underactive and adaptively shortened in, in a sedentary population. But with many of us working with a yoga practitioner population, many of us in this course working with a yoga practitioner population, we are much less likely to, to experience um, that type of dysfunction in this particular population, considering the number of times we utilize eccentric contraction 
of the triceps brachii. Remembering the concept of active insufficiency, we will get greater adduction contribution from the triceps if we have flexion at the elbow, because we would be lengthening the triceps in a relative stretch, let's say, and that would drive more power towards the long head in assisting with adduction at the glenohumeral joint. The interventions for triceps brachii, similarly to what we mentioned before in the lesson about extension dysfunction, considering that this group plays a more prominent role of movements for movements at the elbow, we'll be covering these interventions at a later stage, not in this course. Okay, so you can back pocket that one and place it deeply in the pocket. Coracobrachialis is a generous mover of the glenohumeral joint, especially here in adduction of the arm. The coracobrachialis is commonly overactive and trigger point dense, as a little bit of a reminder as to some of the stuff we've covered before especially if we're working on resisted adduction of the arm, for example, a pull-up, we'll need a strong and healthy coracobrachialis to help us out. If our coracobrachialis is overactive, we'll be likely to see that the glenohumeral joint moves first with our adduction action before we get scapular costal movement, similar to what we mentioned with the subscapularis muscle above. And so taking note of that, if you were to have both of those muscles, the coracobrachialis and the subscapularis, being adaptively shortened and overactive, then you may anticipate that effect to be even stronger. You may see that the glenohumeral joint moves significantly and first, and so you would want to check in with those two structures especially. For the interventions for coracobrachialis, head on back if you want a review for our glenohumeral flexion dysfunction lesson, and they are over in that space. Our last muscle for our true adduction is our infraspinatus. Even though we speak about infraspinatus here, it's important to remember that it only plays a minor role in the production of adduction. Now that doesn't mean it's clinically insignificant because it can indeed lead to pain and other dysfunctions when it's not working optimally. It just means that for this particular movement or action, it only helps out a little bit and that's when it is working well. This muscle does have a propensity towards underactivity and adaptive lengthening. If on the chance that it is overactive and adaptively shortened, it's possible that it may restrict end range adduction of the arm as our humerus moves medially and anteriorly. So that's when we're moving our arm in front of our body. It may end up being not only a mover through the upper ranges of adduction, but as we get towards our terminal adduction, we may actually find that the infraspinatus, if it is adaptively shortened and overactive, it's possible that it can restrict our absolute range of motion here. And for the interventions, we are going to cover those in our lesson to come about glenohumeral lateral rotation dysfunction. So once again, hang tight for those. Now we're getting into our downwards rotation and the movers of downward rotation for the scapular costal joint. Pectoralis major, again, and minor. 
especially important to the initial phase of adduction or downward rotation, pectoralis minor and pectoralis major work cohesively to drive the inferior and medial movement of the apex of the scapula. Earlier in this lesson, we mentioned that the inferior fibers of the sternocostal head of pectoralis major help to start the action of adduction from a position of full arm abduction. Those fibers follow a similar direction to the pectoralis minor, especially when the arm is up like that. The reason we've added this here is because pec minor doesn't have, doesn't span the glenohumeral joint and therefore only drives action at the scapulocostal joint and then pec major moves both the glenohumeral and the scapulocostal joints. The directionality of the fibers here would signal some degree of functional overlap and that's why we've sort of grouped them together here, okay? And that would be especially relevant to the, the starting of this action of arm adduction. We've discussed the common tendencies of pectoralis major above in this lesson. So for pectoralis minor, to review its common patterns, it tends to be overactive and generously populated with trigger points. In the context of arm adduction, if pec minor and major are adaptively shortened as well as overactive, we may anticipate seeing the excessive downward rotation of the scapulocostal joint, as well as additional anterior tipping of the scapulocostal joint. So keep an eye out for those two things. The interventions for our pectoralis muscles um, in particular for the pectoralis minor, we can find back all the way back on our lesson on depression dysfunction of the scapulocostal joint. For pec major, we're going to meet those coming up soon in our medial rotation of the glenohumeral joint dysfunction. The subclavius. Even though it doesn't attach to the scapula or the humerus, it can still add some force to the action of adduction by its draw on the clavicle. Previously, we mentioned that it's not really a prime mover of anything, but again, that doesn't mean it's insignificant when it comes to the dysfunction of the shoulder girdle and pain syndromes. It's likely, it's most likely to have its greatest influence, albeit a relatively small influence, in the action of adduction from the very top of the movement. Given the need for stabilization of the sternoclavicular joint in that position, as well as the initial movement of the scapulocostal joint in downward rotation. Interventions for subclavius are covered back in our lesson on depression dysfunction as well. So you can flip on back there if you'd like a little bit of a review, and then we will resume here with latissimus dorsi when you're ready. For the latissimus dorsi, we've covered this muscle above in respect to its role at the glenohumeral joint. And it's noted here again due to the force directed through the scapulocostal joint. Now, this is as a result, both as a result from its pull on the humerus and the downstream pull on the scapulocostal joint that that generates. And also through, if you recall, the slip that, of muscle that is directly attached to the scapula that a good portion of us have. The two of these things combined means that we 
not only have the latissimus dorsi contributing to movement of the glenohumeral joint, but simultaneously assisting with downward rotation of the scapular costal joint. In terms of our interventions, we, uh, we covered those over on our lesson for glenohumeral extension dysfunction. So if you'd like to, you can check those out as a bit of a review. Then we have our antagonists to glenohumeral adduction. Now it is time for our antagonists to glenohumeral adduction. The deltoids, specifically the middle fibers, are first up here on the list. We are really only likely to see the middle deltoids restrict the range of adduction from the range, from anatomical position to your terminal degree of adduction of the arm. On top of that as well, we're not typically going to encounter much resistance considering that the deltoids aren't really very often adaptively shortened. So if perchance that does occur, if you're investigating the possibility of overactivity and adaptive shortening being a factor here in the restriction of glenohumeral adduction, you could take a look at the interventions for the middle deltoids back for the, on the lesson for glenohumeral abduction dysfunction. The supraspinatus, even though it's not well denoted in any literature that I could find, uh, because there needs to be some more research on this muscle in general, therapeutic interventions that focus on the release of and lengthening of this muscle tend to be most effective uh, at alleviating, tend to be one of the most effective at alleviating symptoms here, which leads us towards an understanding that adaptive shortening and trigger points of the supraspinatus tend to be a significant factor and also tend to be a common adaptation of the supraspinatus. And similarly to the middle deltoids, if the supraspinatus is adaptively shortened, we're likely to see a reduction uh, in the end range of arm adduction as you get towards your terminal range, which is having your arm in front of your body. The interventions for the supraspinatus can be found back in the previous lesson, lesson on glenohumeral abduction dysfunction. The serratus anterior also shows up here as an antagonist for glenohumeral adduction. But the antagonistic nature of the serratus anterior only really shows up from a fully abducted position back to an anatomical position when it relates to movement through adduction. Because our serratus anterior, remember, it draws the scapular costal joint into upward rotation. And for adduction of the arm, especially through uh, a, an upper range, when we're starting in a fully abducted position, we need downward rotation of the scapular costal joint. This is where, especially in those 180 degrees to anatomical position, we would notice some degree of restriction, perhaps, if the serratus anterior were to be um, overactive and adaptively shortened, even though that's relatively uncommon. Beyond that, beyond our anatomical position, the, uh, as the arm moves more medially and as we migrate it anteriorly in front of our body, the serratus anterior may actually help the action slightly because it will help to bring the scapular costal joint into a little bit of protraction and that would be required in order for us to keep the movement of our arm going through adduction anterior to our torso. 
If we were to have an adaptively shortened and overactive serratus anterior, again though, it is relatively uncommon, it would restrict downward rotation um, of the scapulocostal joint and we would be able to see that a little bit better from the posterior view uh, as an incomplete movement of the scapula relative to the rib cage. So we would especially be looking then for the movement of the inferior angle and how it operates through adduction. If we were to notice that the inferior angle doesn't migrate properly through downward rotation, it may signal that the serratus anterior might be restricting the possibility of that downward rotation from occurring fully. But again, keep in mind that would be a little bit less common interventions for this muscle. We're back over on our lesson on scapulocostal protraction dysfunction. So you can take a look back there if you'd like, and then we will continue on with the trapezius, the upper and lower trapezius. In the unlikely event that the trapezius are overactive and adaptively shortened, again, so note in your book here that this is something that we're not necessarily likely to encounter and though we should just keep it on the back portion of our radar essentially. You may see a restricted downward rotation of the scapular costal joint because these portions of the trapezius work for upward rotation of the scapular costal joint. Considering though the common underactivity and adaptive lengthening of the muscle of the muscles in the serratus anterior we may actually see an excess of downward rotation due to insufficient antagonistic force from these muscles. So that's what we would be a little bit more likely to encounter in our work than uh, an, an, an under or a lower degree of downward rotation. The interventions for the upper trapezius can be found over on the lesson for elevation dysfunction and for the lower traps on depression dysfunction. Neutralizers and fixators. The posterior deltoids, infraspinatus, and teres minor. These three muscles act to neutralize the internal rotation force generated by a large number of the prime movers. You'll notice that for infraspinatus and teres minor, this is the second time they, they appear on this page, and that's because their effort has a dual impact. Interventions. For the posterior deltoids, can be found over in the lesson on glenohumeral extension dysfunction, whilst the other two muscles are yet to be covered in lessons to come. Also noted here in our neutralizers and fixators are all the scapular movers that we've identified above. So if we take a look back at all of those, for all of the muscles mentioned, they also play a role not only in sort of movement of the scapular costal joint but also they play a role in fixating the scapulae when the scapulae when the scapular actions aren't controlled this may indicate that we need to assess these scapular costal movers more specifically and see if there are elements of those movers or of those muscles that need some work or need some optimization Links and notes for the interventions for all of these movers, all these muscles, can be found above into different areas of this course. Subsystems of core, once again, they establish our foundation for movement. For now, something to keep in mind is that poor core integration can show up as the inability to isolate movements well. 
Beyond that point, we're going to dig into subsystems and interventions in the future at a future stage. Stabilizers for glenohumeral adduction. The rotator cuff, our favorite series of muscles. Throughout adduction of the arm, we primarily require superior glide of the humeral head on the glenoid fossa. If you recall back to the last lesson, we covered this in a, in a little bit more detail. Uh, this glide action is something that we talk about when we dig in to examine the level of how do bones relate to one another within a joint. Essentially, it's called arthrokinematics. Okay, so this is something that we can dig into as it relates to movement, movement on a little bit more of a microscopic level. When we're thinking of adduction, we want the, the humeral head, excuse me, to glide superiorly on the glenoid fossa as we progress through the movement from anatomical position towards the midline. We'll also yep. experience some posterior glide of the humeral head as we progress there. The rotator cuff is instrumental in keeping these actions controlled and ensuring that the humeral head stays in an advantageous position relative to the glenoid fossa. Remembering as well that if we find that the humeral head moves out of an advantageous position, then the likelihood of us experiencing some kind of impingement sensation in different regions of the joint capsule goes up. Interventions for the rotator cuff. For the supraspinatus specifically, we covered them um, in the lesson about glenohumeral abduction dysfunction, and the other muscles in the rotator cuff, the interventions for these other muscles, are yet to come in some of the lessons that we are going to meet up in very soon. We have some image sources here, of course, if you want to check them out, go ahead. Otherwise, I hope that you have a good amount of fun with the quiz, and we'll see you again in the next lesson.